If you just have a little look in your booklets, the passage in the first page, I'll be reading from that, so that's nice and easy to find. I'll be reading Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. This is headed, The Blessed Life. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let's just pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have brought us, each of us here today, away from the distractions and the busyness of our lives. We thank you that we can worship you in song. We thank you that we can learn from your word. We pray that you will be with Cathy and that you will speak through her to us. We pray that we will have great fellowship with each other and that this day will be a very blessed time. And we pray your spirit will be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, you've all got booklets in front of you. Um, I, <laughs> when I found out that this was being turned into a uh, one-day conference rather than a day and a half, I thought, good heavens above, they're going to have to listen to me for... <laughs> For three talks in one day, that's probably a little much. Um, so I'm going to try and keep this as interactive as possible. I think it's the teacher in me that, that needs, you know, creativity. So your booklets, you're actually going to interact with a fair bit. But um, we'll get back to those in a minute. You might notice that you've got colouring pencils or at least forms of colouring in front of you. So we're going to go and revisit kindergarten. I'm not sure about you, but um, I loved kindergarten and colouring in was, you know, 
we miss it. It's a form of mindfulness that we're going to do today. Okay, but before we look at these two passages in Ephesians, it's always very helpful when you're looking at any um, passage of Scripture, or frankly, any, any book, um, to understand the context, to understand who the author is, because you actually are able to understand um, where they're coming from, what the influences are. Uh, so we're going to spend a little bit of time just looking at Ephesians itself. Okay, so if we're looking at the background um, of the book of Ephesians, Particularly in this case, we're looking at a piece of literature that's a letter, and it was written about 2,000 years ago, and it's written to a church in ancient Greece, and it's written by a guy who was a converted leading Jewish Pharisee. So it does kind of beg the question, what on earth is the relevance to us today? The church it's written to was a church in ancient Ephesus, and you can see a picture of it up there, just because it's a glorious picture of ruins, but it helps just to, again, see the context. Um, at that point in time, this was Greece, okay? Today, Ephesus stands on the western part of modern Turkey. Anyone been there? Lucky you. I'm hoping to get there one day. All right. Today, Ephesus is 15 kilometers from Kusadasi port and city and is 80 kilometers from Izmir and Izmir Adnan Menderes airport, if that's helpful for anyone wanting to travel there once the coronavirus bans lift. In the book of Acts of the Apostles, the Apostle Paul carried out three separate missionary journeys. Okay? So it's helpful to understand this. Once he had been brought to Christ through what was a very dramatic conversion, some of you may know that story, on the Damascus Road, where Jesus just challenged him and said, why are you persecuting me? Paul, who was thoroughly convicted by the gospel, then travelled incrementally further and further afield along the coast of what was called Asia Minor. So you can see his first missionary journey, he taught the new gospel, proclaiming that this Jesus, who had most recently been crucified, was actually the son of God, and that this whole new religion called Christianity was actually for everyone, not just for the Jews. He then established churches in each city to which he traveled, and he trained up leaders and strengthened and taught them the Bible and then moved on. So here's his first missionary journey. Then have a look at where he went for his second missionary journey. He went much further afield. But then his third missionary journey was going back and actually strengthening them and making sure that those churches were continuing on. Christianity was completely new. So as he established these churches, he was well aware that they were still at a very fragile and vulnerable state. So the history of the church at Ephesus begins with the ministry of the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 18, worth writing that down to go back and have a look at when that church was first established. Paul was accompanied by a couple called Priscilla and Aquila. And when he arrived in uh, Ephesus, Paul went to the synagogue in Ephesus and immediately proclaimed the gospel of Christ, which was a whole new teaching. He was asked to stay on and teach further, but he declined the first time, promising to return later in the will of the Lord. But he left behind Priscilla and Aquila to continue that discipleship work. On his third missionary journey, Paul returned and ministered to the church at Ephesus, and you'll see a little bit more of that in Acts 18 and 19, again, for your further reading later. Now, the interesting thing with Ephesus is this city housed the famous temple to the Greek goddess Artemis, who was particularly important to the Ephesians. Um, now, get this, Artemis was the goddess of chastity, hunting, wild animals, forests, childbirth, and fertility. It's quite the resume. Okay, you might pick the fertility bit. <laughs> During his ministry where he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jewish leaders 
and taught in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Paul saw many converted to faith in Jesus Christ, but there were many others who opposed his preaching. In Acts chapter 19, you can read that Paul's evangelization of the Roman Empire threatened the Artemis silver workers' trade in Ephesus. So in Paul's day, Artemis's temple in Ephesus stood as the most preeminent of the seven wonders of the world. So it was a, a big uh, tourist pool. People came from all over to see it. But people were turning from the worship of Artemis to the worship of God, which didn't make Paul particularly popular because it threatened a thriving industry surrounding the worship of and these pilgrimages to see Artemis. So in Acts chapter 19, we read that a disgruntled artisan called Demetrius stirred up a riot which had the whole city in uproar against Paul and his co-workers, and Paul was dragged into this um, amphitheater, thank you, the word was going from my mind. He was dragged into the amphitheater and there was a big hullabaloo and his life was at threat and they ended up um, having to get him out of Ephesus. So in writing to the letter of the Ephesians, um, or writing to the church of Ephesus, they knew him well and they knew what he had been through. He'd already had a significant historical relationship with this church. Now, additionally, it's really important as we come to Ephesus to understand that Paul was writing this while he was in prison. So keep that in mind. It was written from Rome during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. First, keep in mind, okay, so he was imprisoned quite a number of times, around AD 62. So that was about 30 years after um, Jesus, who they were still trying to figure out who this guy was, but he had certainly, uh, there'd been an uproar over this man who then had been crucified. Ephesians was one of the four epistles that Paul penned while he was in prison, which is commonly known as the prison epistles. Okay, again, be, be aware of the context he's writing out of because we're going to come back to that. He probably wrote it around the same time that he wrote the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians and, and Philemon, which are other books of the New Testament. Now, whilst Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus, this letter does seem to be written to a broader group of individuals than just um, the, the few at Ephesians or to a particular church. It's fairly commonly accepted that Paul's epistle was first sent to Ephesus, but the expectation was that it was likely circulated then among other churches in ancient Asia. So in that sense, its message and its application apply as directly to us in the Central Coast in 2022, because it was expected these would be passed on from church to church to church. It was always intended to be used in many churches. How many people have seen the movie Military Wives? Anyone seen it? It's a very interesting movie. I saw it a couple of years ago when it first came out. Military wives um, in this movie, they lived on a military base and their husbands had just been deployed to Afghanistan. Prior to leaving, the husbands wrote letters to their wives which were put on file ready to be delivered to the wives to read in the event that the men were killed in the line of duty. You can imagine how incredibly intentional every word in these letters would have been, knowing when it would be read that is straight after having been notified of their husband's death. Well, Paul was incredibly intentional with his letter to the Ephesians and to the wider churches who would subsequently read it for the same reason. The letter is clearly organised into two parts. We're only looking at the first bit, okay? But it is clearly written in two parts. Chapters 1 to 3, we're only covering 1 to 2 today, but 1 to 3 cover Paul's summary of God's blessed work in Jesus Christ. And then chapter 4 and 6 cover his instructions regarding how they should live or otherwise walk in a faithful relationship with God in their daily lives. 
Between the two parts is a very important verse, which whilst it's not in the two chapters we're looking at, it is the verse I'm going to continue to come back to. Okay, so, um, and I want it to be the application we consider all the way through these talks. And that verse is, in 4 verse 1, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Okay, so we will come back time and time. If you memorize nothing over the weekend other than this verse, and can I say, I would encourage you to memorize scripture. Um, commit it to heart, commit it to memory so that you can bring it to mind time and time again. Make this the verse that you memorize today. Now, Paul had written to other churches about theological heresies and misunderstandings and moral problems often. But in Ephesians, he deals with topics at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. Okay, so that's what we're going to spend time looking at today, both in our faith, but also in our practice. And that's regardless of any particular problems in our community. Paul wanted to protect against future problems by encouraging the Ephesians to mature in their faith. That's my encouragement to you today. We're living in increasingly pressured times in Australia, where Christians are increasingly being vilified and persecuted. Whether you agree with their decisions or actions, we have seen society's response to people like Israel Folau, Margaret Court, the same-sex marriage debate, to issues of gender fluidity, the euthanasia debate. We need the Book of Ephesians to continue to strengthen the foundations of our faith as we face these increasing pressures in Australia today in AD 2022, not just in Ephesus AD 63. So after laying out um, the theology or the understanding in the first chapters of these books, Paul did make his purpose clear. He expected that this community of faith would take, would walk in accordance with their heavenly calling. So that verse in chapter 4, he wanted to say, here's what we understand as Christians, here's our doctrine, here's our theology. Because we know and understand this, let's make sure we're walking in line with this. Paul is saying if we understand who we are in Christ and where we stand in the family of God, then this should actually profoundly affect our relationships and how we behave within the church family, in the home, and in the world. See, Paul's trying to shift our perspective. That's his goal. If we keep our eyes focused on this earth, this world, it can become pretty overwhelming as we look at the news right now. We've got a global pandemic. We've had bushfires a couple of years ago, bushfires overseas more recently. We've had floods. Anyone noticed? We've got a war going on that's constantly on the news right now. We had Afghanistan a couple of months ago. We've got one nation invading another. We've got poverty. We've got famine. In Ephesians, Paul is seeking to shift our focus off the world. And he knows hardship and he knew earthly instability. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was chased out of cities. He got lowered down outside a city wall in a basket so mobs couldn't get to him and kill him. He's currently in jail. This is not a good record of experiences in life. He knows that we all need to have our perspective grounded in foundations that never move, that are eternal rather than earthly and unstable. So he's trying to shift our perspective from that of a citizen of this world to that of a citizen of heaven. He wants us to shift our perspective from the kingdom of darkness that we live in to the kingdom of light. Ephesians seeks to change our orientation from one which is man-centered to one which is God-centered. So as we come to look more closely at the first two chapters of Ephesians, please do prepare, be prepared to be challenged, be prepared to be strengthened, be prepared to be reassured by God and by Paul and by the letter to Ephesians. 
Now, we're going to look at those first um, 14 verses that were just read to us before. Thank you. Uh, And this is where we um, are going to get a little bit interactive. In your booklets, I have put the whole of these two passages. Okay, so what I want you to do as a group right now is spend five minutes just coloring in. Okay, and what we're going to do is to look at verse 1 to 14, grab yourself a couple of coloring in pencils, and I want you, it's a very dense passage. When you first read it, you just go, whoa, like, there is so much in that. Grab a couple of color pencils, and in your booklet, just quietly to yourself for five minutes, go through, and I want you to underline or circle words that you find or phrases that you find that are cropping up regularly. And then feel free to scribble all over this booklet. It is to be sort of written on, scribbled, your notes, your thoughts. Um, Spend five minutes just going through, and then I'll get you as as a table group to share with each other what things you came up with that you see Paul dealing with. So I'll leave you for five minutes. Have fun coloring in and thinking, yes? In those 14 verses, underline and highlight key words, key themes that you're seeing Paul repeat. Okay? Okay, what I'll get you to do now, if you can just choose one person at your table who's got beautiful handwriting to be the scribe or someone who just likes to write, and grab one of those sheets of paper in the centre of your table and just take two minutes now to share with each other some of the key words that you saw cropping up regularly in that passage or some of the key themes and one person can scribe those things into a list for your table. So just take two minutes to do that and then I'll continue. Okay, much as I hate to do this, because I'm loving seeing the discussion going on as you pour over God's word, I'll get you to wrap up there. So this is more getting you to actually look closely at this passage, and I'm sure you've come up with a whole lot of um, themes and ideas that are pretty chunky. So let's, let's just try and break it down and have a look at everything that Paul, Paul's a master of cramming an enormous amount into a sentence or a passage. So let's now try and break down all those different themes and concepts that you guys have come up with yourself. I want you to imagine, I mean, this, this could be traumatic to imagine this, but I want you to imagine that you've been assigned a creative writing task in a NAPLAN exam. Yep, sorry. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll read that as trauma right there. Um, let's remove the NAPLAN and exam. Let's say a piece of creative writing. Okay, and your task is to write a letter to a group of friends from a guy who is currently in prison. <laughs> Okay, what would be the mood or the tone of that letter? What, what mood would you adopt if you were writing? Surely you'd make the assumption that the guy in prison is not in the most positive headspace. Okay, and that the letter might be fairly negative, subdued, even a little depressed. Well, you look at these opening paragraphs in this letter, it gives no sense of a man weighed down and in chains. His body may have been imprisoned, But there's no sense that his mind is imprisoned. His mind is so clearly in the heavenly realms, so to speak. Paul almost seems to address God rather than the Ephesians in the opening here. The tone of Ephesians, and especially the first three chapters, is actually one of praise toward God. doesn't sound like a guy in prison, does it? I've titled the next bit um, in your booklet, Glory to God and Redemption. Let's have a look at that. Okay, so this passage refers to every spiritual blessing. Now, this is a passage I've looked at for a long time. I thought, what the hang is a spiritual blessing? 
um, it took me a while to realise that if I just kept reading, I would have seen the whole list of what it was. But I think the whole concept of a spiritual blessing. Okay, firstly, what is a blessing? You can call out here. Okay, what is a blessing? How would you define the word? A gift? Something that's uplifting? Joyful? Ask yourself this question. Is this something we just use in the Christian realm? Do you hear non-Christian friends use the word blessing? Okay. When they sneeze. <laughs> of course. Okay. Bless you. And that, of course, came out of a very Christian concept that uh, when you sneeze, you sneeze your soul out and someone needs to bless you really fast to get the soul back in. I'm not sure that was a particularly Christian thing. That's the derivation of that idea. Okay. So, yes, they might say it at that point. Do they use it in other ways? How do you think your non-Christian friends use it? Children? Yeah, they might see their children as a blessing. In Kenya, I used to love it, one of the questions the, the Kenyan people would say to us is, oh, do you have children? They'd ask that very early on, which of course is very difficult if you're not a person with children, but it was a very common question to ask. And I would say, yes, I have three children. Ay, you are so blessed. And that was always the response. And I thought, that's such a lovely response. You are just so very blessed. Um, and of course I am. We are blessed when we have children. Um, blessing comes in many forms. But I think we can sometimes have a misunderstanding of what it is to be blessed. And so I've, I've titled this whole series, What is the Blessed Life? Okay, I think sometimes we can think, well, I've got a fantastic house. You know, I've got a, a, a lovely husband. My husband's got a great job. I've got a good job. We've got a boat. We've got, we are blessed. Okay, now, yes, in one sense, you are blessed. Okay, but how do I explain that to my woman in the slums who lives in a mud house and her husband died of malaria the year before and two of her children are unwell? Is she not blessed by God? She's a believer, but she hasn't got a boat and a big house. So we need to look, explore a little bit further what we mean by being blessed. Okay, if, if, we, if we look up what does blessed actually mean, well, Google Dictionary tells us it means God's favour and protection. I'm happy with that definition. Um, in the, the original Greek, in, in the um, language that the New Testament was written in, blessed actually comes from the same word as eulogy. It's quite interesting. It means to speak well of, to bless, to praise. You don't generally go to a funeral expecting to hear anything in the person's eulogy other than all the things that were appreciated about this person. Not always the case, but mostly. Okay? So as we look at the opening verses of Ephesians, Paul is trying to make clear to us that God... God is the source of all of our spiritual blessings. And there's a phrase he uses, which um, presumably you picked up on quite a number of times, in accordance with or according to. Okay, and by using the phrase according to or in accordance with, he's showing us that God does these things. Verse 5, in accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 7, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Verse 9, according to his good pleasure. Verse 11, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So he uses that phrase quite often. He talks about God's redemptive blessings. And the incredible thing that we read here is that he chose to bless us in Christ. Why? Because that's his nature. Just coming back to the dictionary definition again, if something is done in accordance with a particular rule or system, it's done in the way that the rule or system says that it should be done. Okay, so just using it as a term, taking it out of the Bible, if something's done in accordance with, it's done in the way that it should be. Okay, and this was the line that God 
used in the Bible through Paul because he was saying all of this was in line with what he intended. It was in accordance with his purposes. Now, we don't have to look far in our world to see numerous things that are not in line with God's will. Um, as human beings, we keep messing things up. We can see greed, we can see gross wealth disparity, poverty. We see human trafficking, we see marriage breakups, family breakdowns, suicide, our children making devastating and destructive choices. We see family members suffering from illness and debilitating health issues. We see psychological, emotional, physical abuse. We see betrayal in marriages. We see domestic violence, business partnerships that fail. The list is long. But we're reading here in Ephesians something that is completely in line with God's will, and it's unchangeably stable. What is it? What is it that God did in accordance with his will? Well, verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. He'd planned that ahead of time. Verse 7, he wanted to offer us redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He wanted to make known to us the mystery of his will, verse 9. Verse 11, in Christ, God chose, he predestined us. Why? In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Well, how did God do this? How does God bless us? This is the important thing. It's not the house, it's not the boat, it's not the... You know, all those other things, and of course they are blessings, there's no question. All good things come from God. But God blesses us in Christ. So that's a key phrase that comes up time and time again. Paul wants us to understand our spiritual blessing comes in Christ. Verse 4, he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Verse 5, he adopted us through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he has freely given us his grace in the beloved one or the one he loves, that is Christ. In Christ, we have a redemption through his blood, verse 7. The mystery of his will, which he purposed in Christ, verse 9. Verse 12, we're the first to put our hope in Christ. 13, you were also included in Christ. In Christ, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So redemption is in Christ. Forgiveness of sins is in Christ. God's purpose is in Christ. Salvation is in Christ. We're getting the idea? God alone is the source of our spiritual blessings, and Christ is the only way to access them. God's plan of salvation is inseparable from his son, Jesus. Jesus is front and center in the saving gospel narrative. We're predestined, we're chosen. That's always a, a complicated idea because we're always left struggling, thinking, well, if he's chosen us, then we have no control over this. But then the argument is, don't we have free will? Well, yes, it's both, okay? Our human minds can't actually put those two things together. We're not going to spend a lot of time exploring that part. This passage is highlighting the fact that we have the security of knowing that we have been chosen. God has. None of this has come as a surprise to him. Okay, for us who have faith in Jesus, what an incredible reality that we are chosen. And we were chosen before the creation of the world. I find that just mind-blowing. Apparently, Kathy Sampson was chosen before he sort of spun the stars into motion. And um, Again, my human brain will probably never wrap itself around that concept, but I can ponder it into my dying day as a point of wonder. We're redeemed. Who's used the active kids' vouchers? Okay, I find it interesting, the, the Service New South Wales ones. 
find it interesting they use the term, you can redeem that voucher. Okay, so it's not just a, this is not just a biblical term, redemption or redeeming. It gets used in a, in a range of ways. What does the word mean? To recover possession or ownership of, by payment of a price or service, is the definition, okay? That indicates that something has previously been owned by the person, and it needs to be redeemed, okay? God already owned us. He created us. He provided for us. He brought us into being. He made us in his image, and he gives us every breath. So the word redemption is used in the Old Testament, probably most dramatically in the exodus of the Israelite people. Okay, when God delivered them out of bondage under the Egyptians and he held back the waters by his power, and as he led a couple of million people and livestock through the Red Sea, he redeemed them. They were his people. He redeemed them from the Egyptian oppression. Okay, and from the time of the Exodus on, this event sort of epitomized what redemption was. So as we come to look at redemption in Ephesians, the idea of redemption has been used all the way through the Old Testament with a whole series of events. Uh, In Exodus 6, it says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm. 2 Samuel 7 says, Your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for them and awesome things for your land, for your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt. This is not a new concept. This is something God has been doing for his people. Jesus was the ultimate act of redemption. We need to be redeemed from something. Okay, We need to be rescued from something. A redemption price has to be paid. The problem is we can't do it for ourselves. Our problem is a completely fractured relationship with God because we've rejected him and we've rejected his ways. We can't redeem ourselves from that. Okay, Instead, redemption is something that God has to do and thankfully has done for us through Christ, in Christ. One clear theme all the way through is reconciliation in Christ, reconciliation to God and consequently also to one another. That means we're redeemed from God's judgment for our sins, those wrong things that we ourselves have committed against him. And God shows us something called grace. And again, that's another theme that comes through very strongly. Paul talks about redemption as a gift from God. It's not an action we do for ourselves. Paul says that God has given us this grace and that our redemption is according to the riches of his grace. The word grace is all about gifts to us from God himself. God, from his overflowing riches, has lavished, isn't that a beautiful word, has lavished upon us this gift of redemption. And that's why Paul uses the present tense to describe our redemption. We have redemption. We already have it. It's not looming. It's already been done. We already have it. Why did God do this? Verse 9 says he did it to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth, yet again, under Christ. Okay, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. And he did it, according to verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, he did it that we might be for the praise of his glory. Verse 14, he did it to the praise of his glory. That's why. So Ephesians draws our attention to the glory of God. The glory of God is not only the motivation, but the goal of God's sovereign work amongst humans. And there is no greater pursuit for us 
than the glory of God. This passage concentrates on the glory of God as brought about by the gospel. And as we look further into Ephesians, we'll see that the glory of God is expressed in his gathered people, his church. That's where his glory is expressed in our gathering here today, in your gathering tomorrow. The gospel is the good news that God is the all-satisfying end of all of our longings. And that even though he does not need us, we are in fact cut off from him in the great love with which he loved us. He has made a way for us to share in his glory. He is the center of the gospel. The exaltation of his glory is actually the driving force of the gospel. The gospel is a gospel of grace. So Paul is not preaching or teaching in Ephesians as much as he is he's praising God. This is a whole passage of praise to God for who he is and what he's done, which we can so clearly see in the person and the work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Now, I want you to spend some time reflecting. I don't want this to be about me just talking at you all weekend. Okay, so now I hopefully have set some things for you to think through. You've now spent some time in the passage. I want this now to be converted into, how is this personally challenging me? And how can I be prayerfully responding to God's word? So I've actually allowed a passage in there. Um, I think I've put a box, have I, in your booklet? Just spend some time now doing your own thinking and responding to what we've seen so far in the passage. I'll give you about five minutes to do that. The phrase I've also written at the bottom of your page is, based again on that Ephesians 4 verse. Okay? Ephesians 4 verse 1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So as we consider the response to our heavenly calling from this passage, I think is one of praise. Paul is teaching us our response to our heavenly calling is one of praise. So we need to ask ourselves, are we walking in accordance with our heavenly calling? Are we praising God? I want to finish with a, a response that comes from this little book, Every Moment Whole. Um, I'm going to suggest that we treat this as a prayer. I, we will be having another prayer to close, but just take the time to close your eyes and ponder this as we wrap up our thoughts um, as we've looked at this first part. So, O oh, children of the living God, what is your Father's greatest desire for you this day? That we should love our eternal King with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, and with all our strength. And how would you show this love? By remembering him at all times, by cultivating thankfulness for his many blessings, and trusting his good providence for the meeting of our needs, by loving all whose lives intersect our own, by choosing to serve rather than to be served, to be wounded rather than to wound, and by bearing patiently with the failings of others, extending the same kindness, mercy, and compassion that God in Christ has so graciously offered us. We would also love him by serving with faithfulness and due passion in our various vocations, by delighting in all things he has created for our benefit and pleasure, 
and by caring well for all he has given us to steward. O children of the living God, you would do well to practice your love in these ways today. Do you now possess the needed strength to perfectly accomplish such holy requirements? We do not. We are weak and inconsistent and often buffeted by fear and pride and selfishness. But being impoverished and ill-equipped as we are, we will look to the grace of God and to the sanctifying work of the Spirit to accomplish his purposes in and through us this day. As we, in grateful response, seek to choose that which pleases him, we open our hearts anew to you this morning, O Lord, that the love of the Father and the life of Christ and the breath of the Spirit would quicken within us a great affection for your ways. Work your will in us, Lord Christ. Let us now bring before our gracious God any petitions relevant to this day. O Lord, hear our prayers. O children of God, casting your cares upon his strong shoulders, now surrender your own agendas for this day and instead be led by the workings of his spirit. Open our eyes and our hearts, O Lord, to your words and truth. 